the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Special guest on today's edition of Lifeline. We're visiting with senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas and speaker on Pathway to Victory broadcast, best-selling author, Dr. Robert Jeffress, a look at his new book, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, Sharing an Exclusive Jesus in an Inclusive World. I'm curious about part of this issue here, Dr. Jeffress, if where we're, we're, we're failing at this point is that we've perhaps laid a lot of our faith at the so-called altar of tolerance, this notion that, well, if God is really a loving God, surely he will accept us so long as we are sincere in our effort to reach him, whether we call God Allah, Yahweh, or Maitreya. Well, that's right. And by the way, that's one of the objections that I deal with in this book. You know, I wrote this book, Craig, so that people could reclaim this belief that Christ is the only way to heaven. And I, you know, answer seven of the major objections to that belief, the one you just raised. Well, you know, people simply call God by a different name. Or the objection, well, what about those who have never heard the name of Jesus? Isn't it unfair that God would send them to hell for rejecting a Jesus they never heard of? Or what happens to infants and small children who are too young to trust in Christ? 1 Peter 3.15 says we need to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks us for the hope that is within us. But uh, let's take that question you just raised about, well, you know, what about tolerance, or what about people who just call God by another name? Well, you know, names mean something. Allah of the Koran is not Jehovah God of the Bible. Allah is an imaginary God. Jehovah is a real God. Allah has no sons. Jehovah has one son who died on the cross for our sins. Allah says the land of Israel belongs to the descendants of Ishmael. Jehovah God, the real Bible, says the God that Israel belongs to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are not the same gods. And I illustrated that to my congregation, Greg, uh, a few weeks ago. I was talking about David Jeremiah. I said, to my congregation, just suppose for several weeks we announced that Dr. Jeremiah was going to be the guest preacher at our church, and everybody packed in on a particular Sunday to hear David Jeremiah. But instead, I stood up and preached. And after the service, a few of you came up to me and trying to mask your disappointment said, well, wait a minute, is Dr. Jeremiah sick today? Oh, no, not that I know of, I said. Well, the bulletin says he's going to preach here. It says right here, David Jeremiah. I said, oh, well, David Jeremiah is just another name I go by sometimes. Sometimes I use David Jeremiah, sometimes Joel Olstein, sometimes Al Sharpton, but we're all preachers. We're all the same. <laughs> well, that's ridiculous. Names represent something. And the Bible says in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. First John 5.13 says, these things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you might have eternal life. Now, part of this is not only a, a complete disconnect from the fundamental teachings of our faith, but perhaps some, some extreme intellectual dishonesty, too. I mean, isn't this 
partly born out of this notion that somehow it, it, it's possible to have multiple truths all yeah, be valid yeah. simultaneously? Boy, you hit the nail on the head with that. In fact, that's one of the things I talk about in Not All Roads Lead to Heaven. You know, there's what we call absolute truth, and then there's relative truth. Both are real phenomenon. There's absolute truth and relative truth. For example, if I ask you, what temperature does water freeze at? Well, the answer is 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It's not 35 degrees. It's not 16. It's 32 degrees is the freezing temperature of water. But if I were to ask you, what's a comfortable room temperature? Well, that's relative truth. For some people, it's 72. For some people, it's 68. For some people, it's 55. When it comes to the question, how can a person have a right relationship with God, the world today thinks that's a relative truth. It's a matter of whatever you think it is. But God says, no, there's an absolute answer to that question. There is only one way to me, and it's through my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's not a new concept. I show in the book, I have a chapter called The Old Way Was One Way, showing how from the very beginning of the Old Testament, God always required an exclusive way to worship him. I wonder if we come back full circle that this also doesn't reveal a fundamental um, inaccuracy or misunderstanding of everything from the nature of God to the nature of mankind, the notion of God's demand for sacrifice for the remission of sin, uh, and that there, there's a disconnect here so that all of a sudden we get very, well, I was going to say sloppy grace. It's almost non-existent grace because we're trying to define the terms of engagement with God based on our terms as opposed to his terms. Another great point. You know, the problem, the reason we embrace this uh, uh, inclusivism and reject exclusivity is because of two things. First of all, we think too little of God, and secondly, we think too high of ourselves. Uh, you know, we think, well, we're able to overlook sin in other people. Why can't God be as tolerant as we are? I mean, every day we overlook sin in others, we overlook sin in ourselves, but the fact that we do that is not a sign of our uh, how much we are like God, it's a sign of how much we are unlike God. You know, the word uh, holy means a cut above, separate, distinct. God is called holy. He is different than we are. He said through Habakkuk the prophet, mine eyes are too pure to uh, see evil. God cannot tolerate evil like we are. He is holy. We're not. And we overestimate our own goodness as well. You know, we tend to judge ourselves based on other people. We find somebody who's worse than we are and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden, the drug dealer, the child molester. I must be pretty good. But that's not the standard God uses. You know, I remind people that the geographical distance between the North Pole and the South Pole is considerable. But it's also negligible when compared to the distance between the North Pole and the farthest star in the universe. It's the same way with us. The difference between human beings seems to be a great deal. You know, the difference between Hitler and Walt Disney seems to be a lot of difference in, in, in morality. But in God's eyes, the difference between Walt Disney and Adolf Hitler is negligible compared to the difference between Walt Disney and you and me and God, who is absolutely perfect. And only Jesus Christ can bridge that gap between God and man. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We all must make a payment for our sins or allow God to make that payment for us. 
So a fundamental misunderstanding of not only the character of God, but who we are in relationship to God's character, and then at the other extreme, and that is perhaps a fundamental denial of Satan and his efforts at not only watering down the gospel, but the outright perversion of that message. Well, that's right. And, uh, you know, the Bible says to avoid the way of Cain in Jude verse 11. The way of Cain describes Cain's uh, decision that he would try to approach God on his own terms rather than God's terms. And every other world religion, Craig, is really a a deviation uh, or a derivation of the way of Cain, man's attempt to approach God in his own way. And, uh, you know, 2 Corinthians 11 says that Satan appears as an angel of light to deceive people. And other religions are really tools of Satan to lead people away from God. You know, when he says an angel of light, he appears sometimes as, isn't it interesting that Muhammad uh, claims that he received an angelic revelation of Islam and that Joseph Smith uh, claims that an angel delivered to him the teaching of Mormonism? I have no doubt an angel appeared to both men, but it wasn't an angel from God. And uh, Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 11, we should not be surprised that Satan's servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Many world religions, uh, many uh, groups, uh, I mean, they, they sound good, they look good, they sound like they're teaching great moral principles, but they are leading people away from the only way to God, which is faith in Christ alone. Well, and at the core, too, not only is it the sense of, you know, all roads lead to heaven, biblically ignorant, it shows that we're we're theologically dishonest here. You make a beautiful illustration inside of your book, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, this idea that somehow I can get on any highway and wind up at First Baptist Church in Dallas. Now, I guarantee you, if I took off here and got on 101 here in the San Francisco Bay Area, it could lead me to San Diego and eventually to Mexico, and I could make my way all the way up through the Oregon coast and eventually wind up in Canada. But no matter what direction I go on Highway 101, here's what I can guarantee you. It will not lead me to First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. That's right. And, you know, let's say, let's keep that analogy. Let's say that, uh, all, that, that in fact, all roads do lead to heaven. Well, that means Christianity is wrong. Uh, If if Jesus is wrong about this, then you put your faith in the wrong person. Christianity is not the way to heaven if Jesus was wrong about this. But then here's the question. Which of the other thousands of ways to God do you choose? Uh, and, and, And what really confuses the matter is most all of other religions claim to be exclusive as well. So, I mean, you're left with not knowing how to get there if Christianity is wrong. And the fact is... I mean, all different religions are not different roads that lead up the same mountain of truth. Jesus said there's only one way to him. Our guest today, Dr. Robert Jeffress, a look at his new book, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Best-selling author Dr. Robert Jeffress, a look at his new book, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, sharing an exclusive Jesus in an inclusive world. By the way, the new book, recently published by Baker Books, available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order it through Dr. Jeffress's website, associated with the broadcast 
Pathway to Victory, simply go to ptv.org. That's ptv.org. In your book, Dr. Jeffress, you walk through four, I think, very fundamental and yet critical definitions that I think will help the average reader better understand um, not only the slippery slope that, that leads to some of this very sloppy and dangerous theology, but also the importance of, of defining the differences between some of these fundamental worldviews. Walk us through, if you would, brief, briefly, some definitions on universalism, pluralism, inclusivism, and exclusivism. Well, I don't want to get lost in the <laughs> theological weeds in the few minutes that we have, but let me just basically say, you know, universalism is the belief that uh, everybody is going to heaven regardless of what they believe or don't believe. Pluralism kind of limits it to what needs to be religious people, but it really doesn't matter uh, what uh, religious people, uh, what religion it is, that people are saved by the death of Jesus Christ, whether they know his name or not. And that's the point that I want to make, because one of the key questions, Craig, is, well, what about those who have never heard about Jesus? The pluralist would say, that's really no problem, that they are welcomed into heaven anyway. And yet, that's not what the Bible teaches. You cannot find one example in the New Testament of anyone uh, being saved apart from a personal faith in Jesus. Of course, the objection is, well, what about those who have never heard? Isn't it patently unfair for God to send people to hell who've never heard about Jesus? And here's the answer I give in the chapter devoted to this. Romans 1 says, everyone, by looking at creation, can know that there is a God. And although an acceptance of the, re of the existence of God is not enough to save a person, it is enough if rejected to condemn a person. You know, we used to talk about the heathen in Africa, as if all the heathen congregated in Africa. I'm not sure that's why that was, but let's, let's talk about a 12-year-old girl who lives in Syria. She's never heard about Jesus, never seen a Bible. How is she saved? Well, she can look into the heavens and know she didn't create this world. That can't save her, but if she responds to the light God gives her, I think the Bible is clear that God will send to that girl the light she needs to trust in Jesus as her Savior. I mean, he did that for the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. Here was a guy who wanted to know God. He's in a chariot reading Isaiah, can't make heads or tails of it. God miraculously sends uh, the evangelist Philip with the message of the gospel. Or think about the Roman centurion, Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. He was a lover of God, prayed regularly, gave his money to the poor. By most people's standards, that should be enough to go to heaven, but not by God's standard. He needed to hear Jesus, and so God miraculously sends Peter to preach to him the gospel. What I'm saying is, whenever God sees a heart that really wants to know him, you can know for sure that God is going to get the information about Jesus that person needs to be saved. And certainly if God is capable of sending his only son to be born of a virgin, to suffer, die, rise again on the third day, if God is capable of doing all of that, he is certainly capable of individually revealing himself to persons who are perhaps beyond the reach of the church or not having uh, ever been exposed to the gospel in the fashion and form in which we would understand it. 
Well, that's right, and I don't think it's any accident that missionaries go where they go. I don't think it's any accident that the radio signals and television signals and the Internet literally reach around the world sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do we make of some of these individuals? And there are big names that come to mind, including the one big one that's down in your home state that <laughs> would look seriously at the television screen and say, well, now when it comes to this matter of uh, does this mean that someone, for example, who is... <laughs> is um, Jewish is necessarily going to hell. How do we deal with this exclusivity, the notion that salvation is limited to those who exercise faith in Christ and Christ alone? And of course, we've heard these answers. You articulate one in the book that's sort of this, well, I'm not sure, don't know, not up to me to judge. How do we give an answer for that from a biblical perspective? Well, and we've all seen people wilt under the television lights and basically, you know, break out in a sweat, stutter and stammer, and basically say, I don't know, I don't know, we have to leave that up to God. Well, the problem with that is God has already made his judgment about that, and he's articulated it in the Scripture, and we need to be bold and compassionate and share that message with other people as well to save them from hell. You know, when people uh, accuse me of being anti-Semitic, I've been accused of that because I insist that Jews, like everybody else, must trust in Christ to be saved. That's not anti-Semitic. Jesus is the one who said it. Last time I checked, he was a Jew. The Apostle Peter was a Jew who said it. Acts 4.12, there is no salvation except by the name of Jesus. The Apostle Paul was the Hebrew of the Hebrews, the Jew of the Jews, and yet he gave his entire life to preaching that there is no salvation apart from the name of Jesus. So when you have the three most prominent Jews of the New Testament saying you have to believe in Jesus, well, I mean, I think that speaks for itself. Early on in the book, you talk about this notion that uh, part of this slippery slope has been the fact that largely we as evangelical Christians on this very topic have been outmarketed, outmaneuvered, outfought, and outargued. How do we come back full circle? How do we redeem this to bring it back, back to this fundamental teaching that narrow, as the Scripture tells us, narrow is the gate? Well, you know, the fact is, I, I think the fact that 57% of evangelicals believe there's more than one way to God, I mean, it really is a reflection on what's being taught and not being taught in the pulpits today. I mean, as I, you mentioned, several major pastors who are waffling on this issue. My old professor at Dallas Seminary, Howard Hendricks, used to say, whatever is a mist in the pulpit becomes a fog in the pew. And I think a lot of people in the pew are foggy about this issue because they're not hearing it taught from pastors who want to be loving and kind and don't want to run anybody off and so forth, and they are neglecting their role to be prophets and evangelists teaching the Word of God. And, Craig, let me just say in the closing moments, that's why I wrote Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, to equip Christians to reclaim this truth, and I encourage Christians to get it and read it for themselves but also be ready to share that answer. You know, most people, if their child or grandchild asks them, well, do you believe a, a, a Muslim is going to hell? How could you say that? They wouldn't know what to say. Or if they were asked, well, what about children and infants who are too young to trust in Christ? They couldn't give any reason why they believe they're in heaven. All of those things I cover in my book. And as we enter this Easter season especially, as people are more open to Jesus, maybe some of our listeners know people who follow other faiths. They've never known how to approach them without offending them. Here's a great idea. Get a copy of Not All Roads Lead to Heaven and just give it to them as a gift, saying, I'd like to share with you why my faith is so important to me. 
I'll guarantee you this title, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, will grab their attention immediately, and it may be a great conversation starter. Are we as the church, as we kind of conclude our conversation together, Dr. Jeffress, are we as, a, as the church at, at a very critical crossroads? Because it, it, it occurs to me that this is, a, this is as, as they say sometimes, the deal breaker. Yeah. Uh, that, that if we as the church do not fundamentally understand, if we're not capable of, of giving an answer for the hope that lies within, as Scripture exhorts us, if we do not understand the necessity of atonement, or if we somehow uh, recoil against this notion of, of spilt blood, atonement for sin, uh, appeasement, uh, propitiation, things of this sort, if, if, if we find all of that very uncomfortable and we are therefore not able to effectively communicate the faith that we suppose supposedly live and believe in, it would seem to me that, that, that absent that, that the church becomes horrifically neutered. It does. And look, you know, you made an allusion to this. We lost the gay marriage battle because we were outfought, outfought, and outmarketed on the issue. And, you know, marriage is a very important issue, but it pales in comparison to this issue. This issue is the foundation of the Christian faith. How can a person be reconciled with God? And if we allow ourselves to be outfought, outfought, and outmarketed on this, really, we need to shut the doors of our church and uh, keep our money for ourselves. Forget about evangelism and missions. We don't have a message to share with anyone if everyone's going to be in heaven anyway. A sobering message that comes from the very heart of God himself. Don't believe me? Read the Scripture. And you can work through a better understanding of this topic, not only for yourself, but in sharing your faith with others, as Dr. Robert Jeffers so aptly points out. The book, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, Sharing an Exclusive Jesus in an Inclusive World. Newly published, as we mentioned earlier, by Baker Books. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as ordering it online through the Pathway to Victory website at ptv.org. That's ptv. And our thanks, as always, to Dr. Robert Jeffress, Senior Pastor at First Baptist Church of Dallas and speaker on Pathway to Victory. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, you look at the headline news of the last, my goodness, six, eight months or so, and it just seems like no matter where you turn, we're seeing incidences of racial unrest, massacres in churches, economic imbalance, social strife, on and on the list goes. Hard sometimes, perhaps, to see hope and justice and reconciliation in the midst of this turmoil. A lot of people, I think, have concluded that we're, if not in, we're certainly rapidly heading toward the end days. And meanwhile, we wonder, well, what does that mean for us from a faith perspective? How can we better find places in which not only God is working to bring about healing and restoration, but most importantly, feel as if the work, the job that we do is significant toward that end? Warren Smith joins us now, Vice President of World News Group, and perhaps you are a subscriber to his wildly popular World Magazine. He's authored more than 10 best-selling books, including the most recent, Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People. And Warren, great to have you on the program. 
Great, great to be on with you. Thank you so much. It is hard sometimes not to be discouraged. And just as we sort of uh, reach the point that we seemingly have processed the significance of yet another major negative news event, uh, sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, here comes one more. And I think for a lot of people, not only do you kind of get a sense that your your, your hope meter is, is wearing out in all of this, but that you're, you're wondering, well, where exactly is God in all of this? And, and is there any hope in which I can play some kind of small role in engaging in some kind of significant, important change in our society today? Well, you're exactly right, Craig. And, you know, it, it, you don't have to look any farther than the headlines. That's exactly right to see um, bad news. I mean, the Supreme Court rulings have been really discouraging to a lot of Christians. Uh, we see ISIS uh, just murdering Christians all over the Middle East. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, there's plenty of reason uh, to, um, to say uh, that we live in serious times. But uh, we, uh, as Christians, are not allowed to despair. Despair is a sin. Uh, despair means we've given up hope. And, of course, Christians, of all people, should be people of hope. Uh, faith, hope, and love, Jesus, or, or uh, uh, the Bible says, not Jesus per se, but the Bible says, or the, the three chief Christian virtues. And so that's one of the reasons why John Stone Street and I uh, wanted to write this book, Restoring All Things, because... As we have been looking out at the world at all these negative uh, stories, we've also been, been seeing something just quite remarkable, and that has been God's people doing God's work in the midst of all the chaos that's going on around us. And when God's people do that, when God's people just don't get distracted and continue to engage in God's work, which is loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, it's amazing what's happening. We've seen communities transformed. We've seen lives rebuilt. We've seen entire cities uh, transformed, as, as in the case of Atlanta or Detroit. Um, uh, Atlanta, an organization called SCS Urban Ministries, and in Detroit, a ministry called Emmanuel Temple, which are two organizations that we profile in Restoring All Things. So we wanted to tell some of those stories because we felt like Christians did need some hope in the midst of these chaotic times. So at the end of the day, is it less about the news events and more about perspective? And I, and I asked that question because, you know, when we were kids, uh, we all were raised in school to uh, to master the three basic R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Something always told me that one of those words at least was misspelled. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But from, from, a, from a Christian perspective, there's another set of three R's that I think we can't forget that, in fact, is foundational to our very faith, which is what leads me to this question about perspective, and that is another set of three R's, redemption, reconciliation, and restoration, which is foundational to God's plan for not only mankind here on earth, but certainly the role that that, uh, that Christ played in world history. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly right. You know, in fact, I'm glad you brought up those three R's, because there are, in fact, many more than those three R's in Scripture. We, in fact, we begin, near the beginning of the book, we talk about the rewords of Scripture, and you've mentioned three of them uh, there. Uh, too often, however, Christians focus on another set of R's, which are words like rebuke and resist and uh, engage in those activities that um, are trying to hold back the tide of chaos. 
Whereas uh, I think if we focus more on the three R's that you mentioned, R's like reconciliation and restoration and redemption, uh, we, we become people who um, not only are actively engaged in the work that God is calling us to do, this, this activity of, of restoring all things to himself, but we are also presenting a witness to the world that I think they will find compelling. You know, it's, it's one thing um, to say that Jesus saves and Jesus uh, transforms and Jesus redeems, but if our lives don't show that, Craig, it's, that argument is not convincing. That declaration of the gospel, however true, is not convincing. But whenever we are actively engaged in the process of reconciliation, not only are we declaring the gospel, but we are demonstrating the gospel in our lives. And I think that's a much more convincing proclamation of the gospel. Well, in many respects, too, don't we find that message uh, far more impactful in the middle of chaos? And and I ask that question because, you know, let's use the example of the lives of any of us. If we pause for a moment and think, you know, if, if you were doing well, you marry the perfect wife or husband, you had the perfect job, you had the perfect amount of money in the bank, you have perfect health, uh, all of it, a lot of people could argue, well, you know, for what do I really need God here, at least on earth? I mean, yeah, that fire insurance thing on the other side, yeah, that works out okay. But here in the here and now, I'm doing pretty well. But for most of us, our testimony is that in the midst of the pain, the agony, the chaos, when our life seemed to be falling apart uh, right before our eyes, there stepped in God with a message of healing and reconciliation and redemption. And so oftentimes, doesn't God work best in the middle of the chaos that sometimes we as Christians try to push back against and prevent from happening? And I wonder if sometimes we might accidentally be short-circuiting God's plan, because in the midst of that chaos, doesn't His grace shine the brightest? Well, I, all I can say to that, Craig, is amen and well said. Uh, you know, in, in, in throughout history, I think not only in our own individual lives, which you've just identified, but throughout history, we have found the Christian Church thriving whenever the world around it was in chaos. We tell stories, for example, uh, from the 2nd and 3rd century, whenever the great plagues, um, uh, diseases, were just just ravaging cities, and people were running out of the cities uh, into the rural areas just to keep themselves away from danger and disease, but it was the Christians who ran into the cities to care for the sick and the dying, many times sacrificing their own lives in that process. But it was such a powerful witness that we saw Christianity spread dramatically in the second and third centuries. Uh, Even recently in the Ebola epidemic that we saw in Africa, uh, I was amazed at the doctors that that, um, got Ebola and that were put into the quarantine, and a couple of them even died as a result of their work there. And whenever I found out about their biographies, one doctor after another, one healthcare worker after another, were committed Christians working in that environment because they were motivated by the love of Christ and love for their neighbor. So this has been the story of the Christian Church. I think it's a story that we sometimes do tend to forget in our prosperity here in America, but uh, it's one that we need to remember. Well, especially since at the core, if we talk about this from the, the viewpoint of it being a message of redemption, it suggests that there needs to be something from which one is being redeemed, does it not? Yeah. I mean, yeah, is, is, the, is the message of heaven all that powerful a one, uh, absence the existence of hell? I, I, would, I would suggest probably not. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the great theologian F.F. F. Bruce, Bruce once said that uh, 
an, an understanding of sin is the beginning of salvation. And, uh, you know, it's important that we do um, understand that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, and it's, it's awful, also easy for us Christians to get a little self-righteous about where we sit versus our neighbor. But, you know, our neighbor, Jesus died for our neighbors, even the, one, the neighbor that we don't like, you know, just as much as Jesus died for us. So I think that, um, you know, what you just said there is such a powerful component of this whole uh, understanding of a Christian worldview, which is that we do live in a fallen world, but that God loves us so much that he sent his Son, and when we accept him as Savior and are redeemed from our own sins, we get to participate with him in this process that uh, the New Testament describes as restoring all things uh, to its former glory. No, I, I wonder out loud if sometimes maybe this is not an example of spiritual laziness, maybe even a little bit of spiritual haughtiness, um, that sense of reveling in the bunker mentality that, well, everybody's against me, woe is me, look the way that they're attacking me, and so uh, we're doing uh, perhaps a yeoman's job at playing the victim here. Um, and so maybe some people sort of revel in all of that as opposed to saying, look, in the midst of all this turmoil, we've got some work to do. And uh, in the midst of this turmoil, God can do some amazing things in terms of extending that message of redemption, reconciliation, and restoration in and through me. We'll talk about that as our conversation continues. Warren Smith, Vice President of World's News Group, publisher of World Magazine, author of more than a dozen best-selling books. We're talking about uh, finding God's redemption in the midst of a chaotic world. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Warren Smith, our guest today, Vice President of World News Group. He publishes World Magazine. He's the author of more than 10 best-selling books, including the most newly released, Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People. And maybe one of the big operative words in that book title, Warren, is Everyday People. We look, as we intimated at the beginning of our conversation, at the headlines and what's going on in terms of racial unrest, economic imbalance, social strife, all of this taking place. It's its hard, obviously, uh, and frustrating for a lot of people. And then to maybe overwhelming in the sense that people feel as if, well, you know, they'd like to be involved in being an agent of change and, and affecting God's plan for re- uh, redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. But maybe they feel like, well, as overwhelming as all this is, though, isn't my work largely going to be for naught and, and, and ultimately insignificant? Well, you know, it's a really great question, and that's why we wanted to tell stories of everyday people, as you said, uh, Craig. You know, uh, John Stone Street, uh, my co-author, works a lot with Eric Metaxas uh, on the Breakpoint Radio uh, program. Eric has written books, uh, uh, biographies of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and William Wilberforce, who ended the slave trade uh, in Britain in the 19th century. And it's easy to look at these great heroes of history and say, gee, I'm just little old Warren Smith. You know, I'm not uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer or, or um, Eric Metaxas even. Uh, so what can I do? And what we discovered in, in our searching around for stories and the stories that we reported in the book uh, were stories of, of individuals not doing great things, 
but doing small but really important things that had an impact over time. I'll give you a real quick example, and that is look at the life movement in this country, the pro-life movement in this country. Um, Roe v. Wade happened in 1973, 1.3, 1.4 million abortions in this country per year at the peak back a number of years ago. But what we what has turned the tide, If you today abortions, the number of abortions are going down, the younger generation is more pro-life than its parents. That's what public opinion surveys tell us. How did that happen? And, and a part of the reason uh, it happened was because of the pregnancy care center movement in this country. In thousands of communities all across America, uh, men and women have gotten together just to help other men and women in their local communities. Uh, th- this movement has sprung up spontaneously. It wasn't uh, a top-down movement. There wasn't somebody in Washington, D.C. or New York City or wherever saying we, we need to go uh, form 2,000 pregnancy care centers all across America. And yet, when we look you know, 20 or 25 years after that movement started, that's exactly what we, what we have. It's, it's Christians imitating other Christians doing good work, which has caused the pregnancy care center movement to spread across this country and has created what we like to call this army of compassion that, that says to the world, you know, Christians are willing to put their money where their mouth is. Yes, they, uh, they are engaged in pro-life activism. They are in, maybe engaged even in protests from time to time, but that's not all they do. They are also really caring uh, for men and women in crisis situations every single day in thousands of communities across America. It's made a huge difference in the life uh, issue in this country, and I think that kind of a movement could make a difference with poverty. It could make a difference with marriage. Uh, and uh, we, the good news is we do have that one model. Uh, the other news, I won't call it bad news, but I'll call it the other news, is that we still have a whole lot of work to do. Well, and you know what strikes me about even that example that you just shared, Warren, um, many people have often heard the story that from space, one of the more spectacular man-made um, edifices or, or uh, items that can be seen from space is the Great Wall of China. And it is from photographs that perhaps you've seen, an amazing sight to behold from so many miles up. And there you can very clearly make out the wall snaking its way uh, through that section of China. What's ironic about this, uh, that is, having seen the wall, been on it, walked on it, uh, it it is enormous. It is breathtaking. It is an incredible uh, work of, of feat to be sure. But you know what it's made up of? Individual small bricks. Yep. Any one of those bricks by and of themselves would not even be a speck on planet Earth that could be identified from space. But all of those bricks assembled together creates this incredible edifice that has such an impact that it can be seen from space. And it, and it, it, it dawns on me, Warren, that much the same is true of our efforts here, that you know, none of us singularly are going to calm racial unrest or uh, you know, bring about uh, fairness in, in economics or uh, settle social strife of an, uh, singularly on our own. But together, Doing a lot of small things together can really equal doing something great and tremendous that can have unbelievably large and eternal impact, can it? Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, the thing that we do doesn't even have to require a lot of time, money, and energy. At the end of Restoring All Things, both John Stone Street and I tell a story out of our own lives that kind of make the point of the book. John tells a remarkable story of when he was a high, in high school. Uh, uh, he uh, had, it, it really, because he'd been cutting up in school, 
his teacher made him visit an older woman, a sh- what we used to call a shut-in, uh, to, and uh, as punishment for cutting up in class. But so John visited this woman who at that time was in, uh, probably seemed ancient to John, was in her 70s or even early 80s. And they just spent 30 minutes together, maybe an hour together. And John saw this woman a couple of years later, and, and John said, do you remember who I am? And the woman said, I have been praying for you every day since we first met. And that just, the woman's praying for him and then telling John that she had been doing that, that she cared enough about him to pray for him every day. John will tell you today that that changed the trajectory of his life. In my own life, I've got a story of my father who served in Korea. He was not a Christian believer whenever he was a 21-year-old infantryman on Heartbreak Ridge in Korea, but a Salvation Army worker whose name my father does not know, whose name is completely lost to history, uh, ministered to my father at a time of great need in his life. My father didn't become a Christian until 10 or 15 years later, but he always remembers the, the act of compassion by this unnamed Salvation Army worker has been, having been a defining experience in his life in leading him ultimately to Christ, which of course changed the trajectory of my life and my children's lives. We don't know how God is going to use our availability. Uh, It's not about our ability, as the old saying goes, but it truly is about our availability. Our job, our goal, our responsibility is just to be obedient and to let the Holy Spirit work from there. And I I think that uh, great things will happen in the world. Absolutely. And of course, through that act of obedience, Warren, can come uh, God executing on his plan for redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. Warren Smith, again, the book is called... Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People, newly released by Baker Books and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon.com, and also through their website at restoringallthings.org. That's restoringallthings.org. Our thanks to Warren Smith for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.